0: Um, a special welcome to you, uh, to those of you who have never been to one of these before, and uh, hope you enjoy uh, these events. We started them 11 years ago because we could see a demand for public discourse about ideas. Um, and that's what these are all about uh, to think, to be challenged, to th- think about new ideas. And if you've uh, come here today because of what's on the website, or so you've just seen it in the poster, great, you're very welcome. Um, we're going to have now uh, some, an opportunity to have questions, conversation, discussions, um, which, uh, as we know from previous philosophy cafes, can quite often happen between uh, ourselves as well as with, with our speaker. But just before we go into that, can I mention that uh, Alistair has brought um, copies of three of his books uh, here today, which will be on sale at the end. They'll be down here, and Holly will be selling them, um, and Alistair will be at the table here, happy to chat to people and also sign the books personally if you would like that. There are three books, Soil and Soul, which uh, covers the sort of issues that we're talking about today um, in, a, in a format of the people versus corporate power. For those of you who have heard Alistair on Thought for the Day, um, there is an anthology of his Thoughts for the Day on Radio, uh, BBC, and um, then... There was a sort of reference I did earlier on about liberation theology, and some of that's in this compilation here, the Schumacher Briefings: uh, Rekindling Community, Connecting People, Environment, and Spirituality. All three of these books are on sale here afterwards. If you're interested, uh, and Alistair's happy to chat to you and to sign them as well. So it's really uh, over to us all. Uh, and has anyone got any questions, comments, want to start a ramy about anything? Um, <laughs> Uh, K- Katrina has got a microphone, a roving microphone, and if you if you let me know if you're wanting to speak, then I'll uh, let you know who's going to be next, and Katrina will come to you with a microphone. Please don't um, say anything till you've got the microphone. I should have said today as in all the philosophy cafes, is being recorded, and if you want to listen to it again, including alistair's uh, talk at the beginning, it will all be on the church's website. I'll give you the information at the end. Down here first, Christina. Any other hands just now so that I know where you're coming to next?
1: Hi. Um, The thing is, this was a very interesting talk, but could you maybe expand a little bit how you could transfer this, the ownership of the land and also resources of the land onto a bigger scale like cities or even countries to make it more widely applied? Thank
2: you. Thank you. Um, by the way, I've got very, very bad hearing, so I'm on the loop induction system just now, so I can hopefully hear most of you. If you could hold the mic, I heard that very clearly, thank you. Uh, but if you could all make sure to hold the mic close to your mouth. And if you do want to get into discussion, uh, please do that, um, but I won't be able to catch all of it. Um, none of us can expect to be able to count all the stars in the <laughs> sky and I just have to accept I can't hear it and everything either. So the question of cities, the reason why my wife and I have lived in Govan for the past 11 years is that I'm one of the founding directors of the Gal Trust, which is about, you know about it, building boats and basically building community out of working with our hands, making all kinds of stuff, Um, often hard-pressed people in the community who most of all need a sense of relationship to be re-established. When you think of a city like Glasgow, Glasgow is largely made up of people who were pushed off the land in the Highlands, in Ireland, further back in history in the lowlands, also you had the lowland clearances. They were pushed off the land to become cannon fodder for the Industrial Revolution in various ways. And now that the tide has gone out in industry, a lot of those people have been left high and dry with the consequences of intergenerational poverty. So one part of my answer to you would be that that kind of community-based project, including things like community cafes and so on, that create contexts for conviviality between people is part of how you do it. Another aspect of it is being dealt with in forthcoming pieces of legislation from the, I suppose it would be technically from the Scottish Government, but I think it would be fairer to say from the Scottish Parliament because these pieces of legislation have fairly wide cross-party support with with at least one notable exception. And that is the legislation that is upcoming for land reform. We're expecting to hear the details of that announced any day now to build further on the 2003 Land Reform Act. And part of what we're expecting is that it will extend those provisions of the 2003 Act to a right of preemptive purchase for urban communities. Also, the Community Empowerment Bill, which is currently going through its final stage in Parliament, um, is addressing the issue of making, it, making derelict land accessible to communities, um, which will especially affect cities. Patches of land, there's quite a few places that, you know, the owners have done a bank. There's one right beside us at Gal Gale that we're already using partly because the owner went bankrupt many years ago and disappeared abroad. And those buildings are just falling down. The land has had all kinds of rubbish dumped in it by scrap merchants. And at the moment, you know, that's still it's kind of no man's land but hopefully with the Community Empowerment Bill um, I'm not entirely up to speed with what the specific provisions are but the general drift is to open that possibility for, for urban communities as well as rural communities and I think that what we're seeing just now is a shift of mindset going on in Scotland when we were involved in EGG in the 1990s when EGG came into community ownership on the twelfth of june nineteen ninety seven, lots of people were saying, Well we need this to happen right across Scotland now. And I was kind of thinking, hang on, not too fast, not too fast. Let's just take it softly, softly. Let's let's learn to walk before we run. There's a Quaker expression, be ye patterns and examples. What we needed were patterns and examples of what can go right and what can go wrong with community land ownership. Now, we've now got, it must be getting on towards 100 community buyouts in varying degrees, everything from just a building up to estates of tens of thousands of acres. Um, Half a million acres of Scotland's 19 million acres is now in community land tenure, community land trusts. And so we've got a lot of those patterns and examples. And so that's why now is the time for further legislation. Now now we can kind of see where we're going and that such land reform, as Lord Sewell said when the initial land reform bill was being mooted, such land reform will be a rolling process. To which the conclusion, as far as I'm concerned, is if you're a speculative buyer wanting to make a quick buck, think twice before you trump a community in trying to buy land in Scotland.
0: Thank you. Down here, yeah.
3: Hi there, Alistair. Uh, Thanks very much for that that talk. It was very honest and very human, and and, and that came across right away. Um, Land ownership, yes. What do you think about sharing land? And my thoughts at this moment go to the people that are crossing the Mediterranean. With their sons and daughters, grannies and grandas, and children. And I'm a firefighter. I work up in Maryhill Fire Station. I'm a union rep up there. And quite often they get into discussions about asylum, migrants, asylum seekers, and so on. And a lot of people live in their own small boxes. They say, What about my family? What about my services? What about my wages? What about my conditions? Mm. And they don't pay any recognisance towards other people because it's easy to follow the right-wing press at the moment and think mm. somebody else is just going to come here and, and claim brew money or they want a council house somewhere in Partick. Yeah. The people crossing the Mediterranean are no interested in council houses or brew money. They're interested in survival, mm. survival for themselves, their families and their grannies and granders. They're not doing that frivolously. They're they're, they're not doing that for a laugh. They're they're not doing it for any kind of monetary reason. They're doing it to survive. So I think land ownership uh, for the the communities. But I would suggest to you an aspect of that must be sharing your land with other people in need. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, We must never forget that the reason why these countries in North Africa and the Middle East are so destabilised is a consequence of the history, including the present history of our own military interventions and colonial exploitation of those parts of the world. And that what we're seeing is the shadow side of what we have contributed towards doing. At the same time, any community can absorb people coming in only so fast on egg, for example, they've been very careful. to the, the population of egg is now just under 100. It was 60 at the time of the buyout. And some people say, well, you know, the 7,000 acres, it could have grown much faster than that. But they deliberately haven't let it grow faster because they've wanted to grow it at a rate in which they can continue to be a community capable of holding and supporting people coming in. And so I think it's a question of, yes, we have a huge obligation to these people who are in desperate need, but we must be careful that we fulfil that obligation at a rate that doesn't lead to a backlash that causes the rise of the kind of right-wing parties which would give no house room to such people. So we have to live within our means, but that means we have to educate ourselves Means that we have to open our hearts and minds. We have to ask ourselves what kind of a people do we want to be. And that's why in the Gal Trust, the late Colin MacLeod, who founded it, chose that name Gal Gale, because it's a name that dates back to the 9th century in Scotland, where there were areas like Gal- Galloway, um, you have Galway in Ireland, the same, Inish Gal, the Gaelic name for the Outer Hebrides, Gal meaning stranger. The strange of foreign Gael, the Gal Gael, the strange of foreign Gael. The Gal were the strangers, in that case, the Norse who were coming in at that time. The Gael were the heartland people. And so the message that we're putting out is that we're all Gal Gael now. There's something of the stranger in all of us. I was born in England, my mother's English. Gael. My father's people, half of them were Highland. Gales, and I was raised and educated on the Isle of Lewis. We're all Gal Gale now, and that's the spirit, irrespective of skin colour, that we need to communicate. We need to say to people coming in, this is our culture. We have two sacred duties in this culture traditionally. The sacred duty of hospitality for the short term, like with this cafe that is being run here in this event today, the sacred duty of hospitality to the guest. And then for the longer term, the sacred duty of fostership, of adoption. And in Gaelic tradition, the Gaelic tradition of Scotland and Ireland, in that uh, tradition, fostership is held to be even more sacred than blood lineage. The reason being that if you're fostered, you choose and you're chosen. Whereas if you're a blood relative, you can't choose your relatives so that's a culture I think we need to cultivate.
0: Thank you. Here? Yeah. Just here. Kia ora,
1: Alistair. Thank you for your thought-provoking talk. Um, I'm a stranger here today visiting from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, I guess I have an observation and a question. The, the conquest of land seems to have been a mark of humankind's history Mm. Um, New Zealand was colonised by Europe and there have been continual uh, protests about land and land acquisition, the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 established New Zealand as a Mm. um, colony of Britain but there has been disquiet and disharmony quite violently at times over the land And it seems to me that that's, um, since since Abraham was given the command to go and take hold of the promised land, whether it's on a metaphorical level or a literal level, what is it about us? What is it in our human spirit that has this desire to conquer land, to take land from other people and to claim it as our own? and uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: (laughs) Well I mean as you've just heard my perspective is one that is based on a spiritual understanding of human beings but I believe the the sense of cosmic being the sense of cosmic consciousness that I would use the word God for Goddess for Allah, Brahman great spirit, works through unfolding reality by natural processes, including the processes of Darwinian evolution. So I find no contradiction between the science that I love and the spirituality that I love. And one of the consequences of that is that there is a part of us that is... In which life is based upon what's sometimes called the three F's of survival feeding, fighting, and reproduction. <laughs> and I think the process of growing in spiritual consciousness is one of accepting that that's where we're coming from. You know, we're all the products to varying degrees of bygone conquests rapes, pillage, and what have you. None of us can deny that that's in our bloodlines, if you like, because that's just how it's been. But as we grow in consciousness, and particularly world consciousness in this era of internet and fast communications and so on, we're also at a stage, a a cultural stage, in in the evolution of life on Earth. Where we can take a long look at ourselves. And we can say, hang on, you know, as Homo sapiens sapiens, the oldest fossils of the kind of ape that we are are only 195,000 years old, less than a fifth of a million years old. We're just babies in evolutionary terms on this planet. And now, particularly with something like climate change coming on apace, or with nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction in hand, we have to wake up fast. And that's, to me, why the imperative of our times is a spiritual task. And in my own experience, I've spent four years working in Papua New Guinea, for example, which helped open me up to land reform that I then came back to Scotland with In my own experience, indigenous peoples who live simple lives close to nature and to one another in community have got so much to teach us as to what it can mean to be a human being. That's not to idealize indigenous peoples, but it is to say there are things to learn from them And for indigenous peoples themselves or indeed for any poor people in the economic sense who have not had the chance to take riches if they could have them, I often think of the Persian proverb that behind every rich man is a devil. And behind every poor man are two devils. Because a rich person has the devil they know and which we all know. It's all pretty plain out there to be seen. But if you've never had the opportunity to become an exploiter, you've got something lurking in you that hasn't yet been put to the test. That's why we can't idealise any group of people, but we can learn from them.
0: Down the front here, and then I'll come up to you. Yes, down the front.
2: This loop system is working really well, by the way. Um, thank you.
1: Hello again. My name's Joy. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned the Norwegian system, and you never uh-huh. went to expand on that. And I wonder what they have got perhaps to offer us that would help with land reform. Have they got some brilliant ideas, and how are they using them?
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you. Basically, the Norwegians have. A patchwork of owner-occupied small farms with common use, bit like the French communes, where they've got common use of forest lands and so on in the hinterland. And so they have functioning communities. They don't have big at least generally speaking they don't have big landowners owning it and renting it out. It's just owned amongst the people. And I think that's tremendous. I mean, I'm actually, you might not think it, but I'm a great believer in free enterprise, in entrepreneurship, in people having the freedom to own their own things and to do what they want with them, but within a context that is held in right relationship with community. So it's not out of proportion with others. The Norwegian system allows that. The crofting system in Scotland in which the land is held by a landowner and then the crofter has heritable right of tenure, so it, you can pass on a croft from parent to child. It's the same kind of scheme. The crofter is king on their own patch, right beneath their feet, but also has a share in the common grazings. Also, at least when I was a boy, would do common work like bringing in the peats together or herding the sheep together when there were fanks and that kind of stuff. So you've, you've got a squaring of the circle. You know, you get anthropologists going to our part of the world and they can't make up their minds whether we're capitalists or communists because on our own wee patch we're all capitalists. But when it comes to the collective, we're communists. And you can square that. You can have both individuality and collectivity. I always remember one of the first albums I bought when I went to Aberdeen University was by a band called Steel Eye Span, an English rock band, and it was called Individually and Collectively. And, you know, that title, it, it had a big impact on me at the time, and I couldn't work out why. And years later, I came to understand what it was saying, Individually and Collectively. That's what they have in Norway They have it to a lesser extent in France, though in in areas where communes are strong, they they still have it quite strongly. And I think we in Scotland are saying, why can we not be like other civilised nations?
0: I was very struck uh, when Leslie was here last year, and you can go and read it in her book, Blossom if you want, but she, she gives the practical example of, of, about the, the difference it makes to society to have a Norwegian mindset rather than what we've got in Scotland just now, which was about small hydroelectric schemes. And she talked about, you know, a century ago, people in Norway in villages thought we could do something without water. They go in, they experiment, they do the technology. Ten years later, they have a viable technology if you tried that 100 years ago, or even today, in parts of Sutherland, the Duke of Sutherland would send his bailiffs to get you out of the water. And, and it's that sort of entrepreneurial ship which is rooted in community um, that, that can make a difference in society. And that was one thing that struck me last year. We're coming up here, uh, Katrina, yeah, in the white T-shirt.
4: Hi. First, thank you for sharing your ideas and visions. Um, so... Just my uh, my remark would be, um, because you speak a lot, which I think is a very important aspect of the of process to reclaim the the land and uh, relocalizing the, the power uh, with the community. But I think it's, as you also say, it's a spiritual transformation and a change of worldview. So it's going to be a multidimensional change and, and, and work. So I think it should have also... Um, Apart from the local work, uh, we should also work an, on uh, more overarching institutions, of interna- overarching interst- institutions, institutions. Of, or inter- international institutions, uh, in order to support these initiatives. And I mean, it's going to be a there must be a reflection on international laws, of international, international laws, laws, on different scales. Yes. So, how yeah. do you see that? Because the political system will have to change in yes. order to embody this, yes. uh, because the present one is quite inefficient. Um, okay. Well,
2: to take two areas of international law, yeah, to take two areas of international law that are significant here. One is the um, European Convention on Human Rights. And this one's been playing out really interesting because back in, um, or around the year 2000, there was a court case in Scotland over another campaign I was involved in that I also talk about in Soil and Soul, the campaign by which a giant multinational company wanted to destroy a mountain in the south of the Isle of Harris to make a super quarry, the biggest quarry in the world. And basically the Scottish politicians didn't want to make a decision on it because it was too complicated. And so they kept on kicking the ball into the long grass. And eventually the company, which is the French company Lafarge, by that time, because they had taken over the English company Redland that initiated the project, took the case to the Scottish courts and they won their case on the ground that a corporation is a legal person and therefore a corporation is also entitled to protection under human rights law. Now, of course, this was never the intention in framing human rights, but that's actually the way it has now worked out in law, and that law was partly pioneered here in Scotland over that particular case. And so what you've now got is that Scottish Land and Estates, the erstwhile Landowners' Federation, are saying that to have land reform in Scotland would compromise their human rights as owners. However, the um, professor of human rights law at Glasgow University, Alan, um, what's his name? I'm sorry, his surname's escape me, the professor there who advises, who's chair of the Scottish um, Human Rights Committee, he points out that if you look properly at human rights law, it actually puts the public interest above the private interest. So he's arguing that that is a fallacious use of the principle to try and stop land reform on human rights ground. If you can show that there is a wider public interest for land reform, then you're in the clear, just as you are with compulsory purchase orders. Another area of international law or convention that I would point to is the United United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And the bottom line of that is that it's saying that you can't deprive Indigenous Peoples of their land and property. If there's going to be any development in the land of Indigenous Peoples, it must be undertaken with what they call FPIC, Free Prior Informed Consent. Now, one of the lovely ironies that came out of the Harris Super Quarry is that at the end of the day, what released the logjam is that a French banker was on holiday in Scotland and he picked up a copy of Soil and Soul. And he subsequently contacted me and said he could not believe that a company as responsible as Lafarge, the biggest cement company in the world, claims to be in France was doing something like this in Scotland. And could he come and see for himself? So he came with me and we went up to Harris together along with his son. And I managed to get this portly Parisian banker right up to the top of Mount Ronneville, which was no easy task, but we got there. And then to my horror, when we got to the top, instead of admiring the view... He pulls out his mobile phone and starts blethering to his colleagues. And I'm kind of thinking, what's going on here? And you know what he was doing? He was phoning up his business contacts in Paris and saying to them, fix up a meeting between Alistair McIntosh and the senior people in Lafarge so that they will hear what is being done in their name by the acquisition that they have taken over. So, I was duly flown to Paris. I met with three of the vice presidents. And I said to them, you realise that what you are proposing to do in a national scenic area would be equivalent to violating a French national park. And that's not going to play out very well in the Monde when we start campaigning here. And they said, well, can you arrange a visit for us to come and see for ourselves? So those three vice presidents came over to Harris and they met with all sides of the opinion on the island about the matter, and to cut a long story short, they subsequently withdrew. We negotiated what we called a dignified exit strategy for them, because this would be a genuine triumph for corporate social responsibility. And in fact, one of the main reasons that they were seeing is that it would be damaging, they understood it would damage the local community fabric if they went ahead, not least because they had no intention of opening that quarry any time in the future. They primarily wanted the permission to do it, so they had a land bank on their balance sheet. That's what they told me once I got to know them well. And then they got back in touch with me and said, Well, Alistair, we agreed with you about the Harris Quarry, but we all use quarry products, don't we? Right beneath my feet. We all use quarry products. You too. How should a company like like us be doing it more responsibly? And they asked me if I would serve on the sustainability stakeholder panel, the kind of panel that us greenies would usually call the greenwash panel. Well, I got back in touch with all my colleagues in the campaign, the WWF and Friends of the Earth and the local people in the community and what have you, And I said, what do you think I should do? And they were all unanimous. They said, yes, do it, but don't take their money. Take expenses. Cover your expenses, but don't take any fees from them. So the net result was that for 10 years I've been on that panel. I came off two years ago because it was taking too much of my unpaid time. And I I basically said it all. I was now like a record going round and round in the same groove. But the final thing they did which was largely at the pushing of myself and Jean-Paul Jean Renault of WWF International, is that they became the first major minerals extraction company, extractive corporation as they call themselves, in the world to formally recognise the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And that's written in their annual reports. You'll find it all on my website because I made sure that I downloaded those reports and I've got them on my website just in case any subsequent management tries to disappear them. That's all there. And you can say, well, that's only something on paper. But the point is that if that corporation now tries to mess with indigenous peoples anywhere, those indigenous peoples can point to that in their annual environmental reports and say you're violating your own policy and that would create a media stink. So that's how that works. So there would be two examples of playing it out on an international scale.
0: It sounds as though a film should be made of that and maybe a title, Local Hero? Uh,
2: (laughs) I I think there'd be plenty... I I, I mean, that's a very interesting point. The thing is that something like that, you know, something like the Super Quarry, was actually very divisive within the community. And when I've had people contact me and say, can we make a film of it? I've said to them, well, only if it's something that doesn't relate to Harris, because otherwise you'll be poking the wounds too much of that sector of the community whose hopes had been for jobs in the quarry. And so you don't actually feel like a local hero in those situations. You actually feel, when you're doing this kind of activism, you will actually find yourself feeling very uncomfortable a lot of the time because if you're sensitive to all levels in the community you will feel divided within yourself just as a community is divided within itself and that again is where it calls for nothing less than spiritual discernment as to what you are called to do or not to do
0: Time for a couple more questions, yeah, one at the back there MDLs, can, can I see if MDLs can...
5: okay, right? Just a, a quick thanks uh, Mr McIntosh uh, I'm from Lingerby in Harris huh.
2: Oh well that Norman? Yes. Norman, my goodness me. Oh, well, 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 well. The man was a stack. Yes. Well, well, please tell us your opinion on...
5: Well, I I remember one incident with uh, uh, (laughs) Sulean Stone Eagle of the Micmac when he came over and uh, we had uh, an interview with him and uh, with the Canadian Broadcasting Company. That's right. And we gave him the Presented him with a peat yes. from Harris that he took with him to Canada, and I hope uh, customs didn't stop him thinking it was something else.
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you'd, you'd get pretty high on that smoke.
5: <laughs> I, dare, I dare say. <laughs> but there we are, yes, Slingerby is still there, and the people are still there.
2: What's your opinion of what is happening in Harris these days? I, I think it's wonderful. Tell, tell people what is happening in Harris.
5: Well, most of, most of the land is now been taken over by the people. Uh, North Harris has been taken over. The west side of Harris has been taken over. Um, lots of initiatives happening up there. Uh, the east side, the rocky side where I stay, or did, did stay at one time, um, that's, mm, that's out for tender, uh, depending on whether they'll uh, get the money uh, together. But I would say that uh, in the next few years it'll... It'll be bought out by the community. And there'll be only one pocket left remaining um, of Harris that uh, is uh, owned by a a layered... No comment, no comment. No comment either, (laughs) no. But uh, I think we'll get that as well at the end of the day.
2: Oh, it's lovely to see you, Norman. Lovely to see you. Um, You know... Do you remember, Norman, I met you in a hotel in Pitlochry. Now, one of us was quite far gone at the time, and I won't embarrass either of us by saying which. Indeed, it might have been both. But one of the things I said to you, because that was while the campaign was at its heat, I, I said, have I got you a blessing in the work that I'm doing on this? And you said yes. And I was asking the same question of a number of people because that sense of blessing, that sense of inner endorsement is what carries you in those difficult times at head. And it was very difficult. I mean, I lost my job at Edinburgh University. They closed down the Centre for Human Ecology because, as a senior professor said to me, when we go... To research councils to get grants, and we have meetings down in London. They look at our papers and we, they say, Hang on, University of Edinburgh. Now, where is Edinburgh? Where is Edinburgh? Isn't that the place where they run around super quarries with Red Indians and cause trouble for our friends, the Lairds, on little Scottish islands? No, we won't fund Edinburgh on this occasion. That's what I was actually total so it's, it's it's difficult i should say to edinburgh's credits they've now got me back in 10 percent time via the divinity school um but you know, it's difficult and so it's it's so important if you're if you if, if you're rooted in the community and, and you see somebody struggling to carry work like this give them your sense of blessing
5: I live in the western suburbs of London. I live in a terraced house where you can hear your neighbours feed and fight and anything else they might get up to. And I'm trying in my mind to apply what you've been saying to the many built-up, built built areas that the vast majority of the UK population live in. And I wonder whether you've got any comments on how it would apply.
2: Oh, gosh. Um You know, Varen and I are very fortunate in that the terraced house that we live in, in Govan, is in a part of the world where community is very broken because of the intergenerational effects of poverty. But there is still, in a sense, the handles of community are there. And when you create context, like a community meal or boat building or something like that it comes back together again and I have to say that often when I speak in especially in the south of England and people come up to me and say you know it sounds wonderful what you've been doing in the Hebrides or whatever but how can we do this here the social situation they describe sounds so much harder it's just so much more fragmented there's so little legitimacy around the very idea of community. You know, one thing about Scotland is we've got very high legitimacy around the idea of community. It's something that's held in Scottish people, including people who have come to live here, because often they've come to live here because they want that, and so often they can become the strongest supporters of it. If, they've not, if they haven't just come to buy the view, which some do, and to speculate, it's have come here because they like the people the incomers are often the ones who most strongly hold it together. We saw that very strongly on Egg. We saw it with the Zipper um, quarry too, the role that people like the Johnsons played, f- f- for example. But in, in some of these South of England situations that I have seen and had described, I really find it much harder to know how. where would I start with something like that. The best advice I would have would be what Gandhi said. He says... If you're in doubt what to do, picture the poorest person you know and ask, would your intended court, course of action move them closer to swaraj, I think it's pronounced, a Hindi word that means self-rule, self-determination. And so I would say, you know, look where the need is greatest in your community and just get involved. And learn the skills of community development. There's a lot of good stuff out there. There's an English guy at the University of East Anglia, Robert Chambers, best known for a book called Farmer First. But he's also produced a very good book, I just got it recently, on ways of working in community groups. If you check out that name, Robert Chambers. um, Pick up that kind of stuff. Go and visit projects elsewhere in London and ask yourself... Maybe not if you're going to start something, but rather where can you find things that are already going on and try that? And all I can say is blessing on you in doing that work.
5: Your Gandhi quote was very pertinent. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Time for one more question. Oh, yep, there we are. Okay, cross here.
2: This sound system is working magnificently. Great. If every hall I spoke in had such a good loop system that you've got here, I would have no problem. I wouldn't have to be apologising at the outset.
6: Hello, Alistair. Can you hear me? Yes, I I can.
2: Thank you very much.
6: (laughs) Uh, I'm Stephen. I live in Knightswood, and part of the reason I wanted to move there was because it's high flats, it's high density. I got this feeling that people would be connected... And Did
2: you say Knightsbridge?
6: Knightswood.
2: Knightswood. Okay. Yeah. Here. here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you meant down in London. Anyway, <laughs> right, okay, No,
6: thanks. and there's loads of land yeah. that just gets mowed by the machines, mm-hmm. and I started planting um, herbs, veg, a few fruit trees. Yeah. And the people who work for the council, they're only trained in using a chainsaw. They They're not trained in any knowledge of plants. And as long as they've got their health and safety certificate to show that nobody's liable, Hmm. then they'll just hack everything down, Hmm. spray weed killer. And in my experience in dealing with people in local authorities and in my own work in the care sector, which I've done for 10 years, I've just found that whenever you present a new idea to someone who's in a position of relative power because they've always got people to answer to and answer to and so forth.
2: You put it very well, yeah.
6: <laughs> they, you can immediately see their eyes ticking about what can go wrong and how will that affect me. And I've made no progress because I've just felt deflated because I, I, I just feel people are too scared to do something different. Yeah especially people who work in the council or the housing association. And I was wondering how you can present yourself, Mm -hmm. which is working towards change, but at the same time, it makes people feel comfortable because I tend to be very passive or I, I won't go into detail, but I tend to be a bit forthright One of the two, I find it very difficult to present myself in a way that is both non-hostile but at the same time making them feel comfortable. I was wondering if you've got any advice on how to go about that. Thank you.
2: Well, you know, I think the tyranny of health and safety has become the refuge of the unimaginative. We face us all the time in the Gal Gale Trust because you know, we'll have people coming in that maybe never handled a tool before and we'll give them a sharp chisel and a hammer or they might be working with our sawmill out on boats and what have you and our experience is that health and safety can indeed be very constrictive at the same time we have been forced to realise that we are living in a fast moving world you see, if you take Norman there from Harris or myself from Lewis, and we won't get into the debate, Norman, as to which makes us better, but we could be there all night on that one, um, probably best conducted in the Moulin Hotel in Pitlochry. Um But if you take the likes of us... Um, we have probably got embedded within us what Robert Persick in his wonderful book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance refers to as a mechanics feel. And by a mechanics feel, it means you can work with things and you have, you have a sense of what you can do and what you can't do because you've grown up immersed in those things. You've grown up climbing up ladders. You've grown up slicing the hay, cutting peats and what have you. You have a feel for how to work with the properties of matter. And embedded in there is health and safety without anybody needing to teach it to you. So to the likes of us, the health and safety uptightness is pretty offensive. However, when you get some poor hand, as we'd say in the Hebrides, coming in off the streets of Govan, and they've never had an opportunity in their lives of that, they just haven't got a clue. And so we have to have that health and safety. It's, it's a protection for them. It's a protection for us. But two things make it pernicious. One is when the no-win-no-fee mentality gets into people. And recently we had our first case of somebody who cut themselves in the workshop going along to a more likely being harangued in governed shopping centre and putting in a a claim against our insurance and that, that makes it pernicious. Because instead of accepting the knocks and bumps of everyday life, you've now got to have everybody wrapped in cotton wool, which is very constrictive. And the other thing is when the unimaginative bureaucratic mind gets hold of health and safety and realises, as you're describing that they may not have much power in other aspects. They may may not have much power in places where it matters, but they can gain power through wielding health and safety as a hatchet over everybody else's heads. And I think we've got a systemic problem there, that the kind of American approach to liability has has infected our culture. There are large areas of life where personally... I would like to see the liability shifted over onto the need for all of us to exercise due care ourselves. I mean, after all, we're not like America. In America, if you injure yourself, there's no health service worth talking about to help you out. We've got a good social security system in place. We've got a health service. We've got sickness benefits in place. We don't need... All that layer of legal flab wielding it over us. And if we ever get an independent Scotland, that's something I would like to see go on the agenda in terms of what we should be looking at by ways of ways we do things differently so as to build conviviality and trust and responsibility and to restore the kind of skills that the likes of us would take for granted, Norman. But which tragically is so lacking in people now. In fact, I was up on Harris the other day, I was staying at John Macaulay's, and um, his stepdaughter, Ella, who's studying veterinary at Glasgow here, she was just in from the fish farms, and as part of a student project, she'd been out in the loch along that wee road between Lingra Bay and um, Leverborough. She'd been out on the salmon farm the marine harvest, I think it was, is it? Or one of the, them, anyway. And she'd had a fantastic... I mean, imagine it. I mean, this 20-year-old lass and all these fish farmers and their helicopters and, oh, my goodness, she was just totally revving on it. But what was making her so sad is that she was only allowed into that fish farm because she's a veterinary student and the, med- the veterinary school had all her insurance and everything covered. And the other lassies and guys from the village apparently aren't allowed in there. I mean, when we were growing up, we would have been right in there doing it all and so on. That's not happening now. That's not happening now. And it's destroying the embedded practical education of our people. What can you do in practice? Get control of the land. Look at what's coming up in the Community Empowerment Bill. If you can get... I'm losing my... I'll have to move. I'm losing my loop induction there. If you can... So try and get control of the land and then at least you can bypass the council officers. You can't blame them because, you know, they'll lose their jobs if... You can't blame them, but that's where it's got to be lifted out of that into the hands of people. And I'll tell you something when Verena and I, when we moved to govern and we bought the house there in Loss Road, because I'm involved in all these dodgy things, we put the house in her name. <laughs> be wise. Um,
0: th- thank you, Alistair. Um I know there are people here in this room today from many nations and I hope it's been useful because clearly this topic is rooted right in the minuscule and the local but is, is clearly something which we all know is of significance to all the, the nations and people groups of this world. So thank you to all of you who have come from other nations today as well. Just a reminder that um, This will be available on our website, hillheadbaptistchurch.co.uk. You can hear the whole thing again, including your questions if you spoke. We have a long uh, list of people who like to be kept up to date with the Philosophy Cafes. If you've changed your details, and we already have them, then you can update them today. Or if you want to be kept informed about future Philosophy Cafes, uh, Anne will be at the door at the end for you to to sign up. I promise you, you will not be contacted about anything except Philosophy Cafes. Uh, But either email or a postal address there. Next week, uh, we will be welcoming uh, John Curtis, the Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, whose subject will be In a Democracy Does Polling Matter? <laughs> um, and uh, John will be, as always, entertaining and informative now. We'd hope there would be great discussion uh, at that as well. So please, if you're available, come next week uh, for John Curtis. Um, I think that's everything. Books will be on sale here. Holly will be helping, and Alistair will be at the table to chat to you and sign books as well. Uh, But in closing today, in, in, in thanking Alistair again, can we also thank each other? Because, of course, if we didn't turn up, there would be no conversation. So, thank you to Alistair, and thank you to everybody.